Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Erica Warsinger, co-founder and director of the Startup Collaborative. Erica Warsinger is the co-founder of the Startup Collaborative, an Omaha-based nonprofit dedicated to radically improving the odds of startup success. More than 70 area startups have participated in the unique blend of incubator and accelerator program. The collaborative has been connected to the creation of hundreds of jobs, millions in venture funding, and the inspiration of thousands of current and potential entrepreneurs. Erica hails from Dallas, where she worked with civic leaders on public-private partnerships. Now she's in Omaha. Welcome to the show, Erica. Hey, thank you. There are a lot of misperceptions about entrepreneurship. So why don't we start with me asking you, what is an entrepreneur? How do, how do we define that? That's sort of the age-old question. It's interesting. So here in Omaha, we're situated in the backyard of Gallup. And I think that question that you are asking right now is the one that is keeping Jim Clifton up at night. What is an entrepreneur? You know, in my line of work, I'm able to see a lot of different people who have um, inspiration to do something that's slightly different than the norm. And I would say the entrepreneurs are the ones who are willing to do something that looks a bit harder, that relies heavily on them for every element of the creation of a company. And when really boiled down, they're not afraid of failure. They're able to sort of navigate through various risk points and determine what is a viable path for creating a business, whatever type of business that is. I think entrepreneurs are, um, well, I think a very rare breed of person um, that have a very special skill set. But it's interesting, they need innovators side by side. And that's that is sort of a unique thing that Omaha actually does well. We have a lot of innovators here, a lot of people who can look around the corner of a market and see an idea present itself. What we need to work on as a market is sort of that marriage between the innovator and the entrepreneur. So who's seeing what's happening around the corner or what the opportunity might be? And then who's the person to really execute and run run it all forward? That's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about entrepreneurs not necessarily being the innovators. And not that they aren't, uh-huh. but that formula for a successful startup containing someone who is astute about the taking of risk and the understanding of failure plus someone who is an innovator that has this concept or idea that sees around the corner, as, uh-huh. as you said, th- these are the two key ingredients to go into this startup. I think so. I really think so. And we've seen that play out. You know, the Startup Collaborative launched 24 months ago, right around the same time that you guys launched this show, actually. You know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like we're as stable as a toddler walking. Uh, but we we were the formation of three other programs in this market that supported entrepreneurs. And so we have this benefit of two years in, we've seen hundreds of innovators and hundreds of entrepreneurs come through. Um, The ones that we have seen success with, though, really find that unique formula. And they have that sort of self-awareness of knowing what's it going to take to build this and can I build it or should I build it? Maybe it's the better question is the should I? Because the innovator is really important. Entrepreneur, I think I'm I'm an exceptional entrepreneur, so says me. Gallup would say that too, according to my my score. But I'm not an innovator. I'm not the one that's looking around the corner seeing the opportunity to disrupt or to change or, 
you know, my co-founder is great at democratizing every process. That's actually not something that's very natural to me at all. Um, but what is natural to me is mitigating the risk and not being afraid of failure and being able to survive the no, but also accelerate the yes in the process. So that has been eye-opening and a lesson in self-awareness, even in my own journey. So I think we should come back to this idea of self-awareness and the psychological characteristics that make up entrepreneurship. Uh Before we progress with that, and before we get to the startup collaborative, which is which is where I want to go next. Right, it's my favorite topic. Perfect. Well, this, this is going to be good. <laughs> Let's then, talk about that. Totally going to get to that then. Before we talk about what the startup collaborative is and and the why of it, yeah. could you just describe the business and entrepreneurial landscape Absolutely. as it exists in the Midwest, so we Absolutely. can get a context for this? Yeah. So you know maybe. The best way to do this, if this is okay with you, is to like put ourselves in the shoes of someone that has an idea, right? So um, you're sitting on the couch or you're sitting, you know, at your workplace and you start to realize that there's a problem. There's something that's either um, annoying, cumbersome, overly manual, anything that sort of presents itself as this moment where you could say this could and should be done better is typically where a company starts, frankly, this could and should be done better. And I think if you if you sort of put yourself in the shoes of that entrepreneur, whether or not they have created that company, that's where they all start, is that moment where they get off the couch and say, this has to be done better. Couch being metaphorical, it might be their boardroom, it might be, you know, the plant, it might be elsewhere. At that point, entrepreneurs do what we all do. I mean, they look at, <laughs> they Google how to start a company, right? Like this is, how do we like clean the floor when it's messy? How do we do all these things? How do I feed my dog so it gains weight? We start with Google. And so we have gotten really good at the startup collaborative, making sure that our presence is there and ready to meet them when they're asking the question of Google or whatever they're asking the question of. And then you get a myriad of options. And I think this is where, at least in this Midwestern market in Omaha, we were really confusing entrepreneurs. We were creating unnecessary um friction in the startup process. And so that, you know, to your point earlier on self-awareness, we had to take a step back and say like, wait, why do we have 10 different entities in this market of a million or so people trying to gobble up every fifth person that wants to be an entrepreneur? So if we can better support them in the early days when they've gotten off the couch and they say, this can and should be done better, help them find product market fit, which is ultimately what everyone's looking for. We all want to make sure that what we are saying is a solution is in fact a solution that the market wants. Um, and then help them assemble the team that can help them do it, right? Like it's starting up is very much a team sport. Um, doing it solo is, it's awful. It's painful. It's harder than it should be, slower than it needs to be, all the things. And then if we can help them get capital when they've got those earlier pieces in, uh, we've just changed that trajectory of that company, that entrepreneur, that idea dramatically. And so there are some statistics you can find anywhere from, you know, 75%, I think, of small businesses fail. Um, Of tech startups where we tend to play, it's, uh, some will say, as high as 95% failure rate. And you can understand why. I mean, it's like, how do I even figure out if there's anybody else wants the solution? How do I figure out who wants the solution? How do I make the solution? How do I buy this? All this, all the questions in there. So um, it all starts with like, this can and should be done better. And then making sure that you know how to figure out that other people think that something needs to be done better too. So it's interesting to me that in some ways, 
you, you've taken your own medicine because Absolutely. you looked at the entrepreneurial landscape as it existed in, in this region of the Midwest and saw a degree of confusion, not necessarily to criticize what was there, but you saw a degree of confusion. We were and creating it. You got off your couch or jumped out yeah. of the bathtub or whatever it was. Whatever we did. Uh, and, and you said this couldn't should be done better and hence Startup Collaborative. Hence the Startup Collaborative, yeah. So maybe give us a little bit of the history of that then yeah. and then we can explore what Absolutely. it is you do. Absolutely. So, you know, that problem that we were so and are still so hell-bent on solving, that thing that couldn't should be done better – Starting up is hard. We exist because starting up is hard inherently. And we aim to improve that and improve the odds for these entrepreneurs. When we looked at it, you know, there's three main reasons a startup or a founder will fail at their endeavor. One is lack of product market fit. And that is that is maybe one of the easiest areas that you can buy down. It is the cheapest thing that you can de-risk. It's the the sweat equity you can put in. Um, the second reason, which is a little harder to figure out <laughs> as you try and buy down your risk, is the team that you're surrounded with. And so earlier we talked about the innovator and the entrepreneur. You know, in, in very early stage software companies specifically, there's 10 roles that need covered. That doesn't mean 10 bodies. That doesn't mean 10 people. That doesn't mean gold-plated. That means a couple people have to be accountable for 10 things even if they do them dirty, like even if it's just a little too messy than everybody's comfortable with. Um, and then the third reason a startup will fail is because they don't have capital. Now, sometimes you don't get capital because you don't have the right team and you don't have product market fit. Other times bias comes into that equation and eliminates your access to capital. And so, you know, we looked at that and said, go, we can, we can help solve some of those. We can improve the risks around them. And so, when we launched 24 months ago, um, we absorbed a traditional 90-day startup accelerator. We absorbed an incubator, and we absorbed the Greater Omaha Chamber's essentially community-building efforts. And by doing that, we somewhat, um, to use sort of a capitalist phrase, we cornered the market of early entrepreneurs. You know, we we saw that being a huge failure point. There weren't enough people asking the right questions of their business model in the beginning at the earliest stage. So we needed to get to them as early as we possibly could. And by those three companies, one of which was my own, saying, okay, shed the weight here and turn it into something, we were able to do that, to start as early as the entrepreneurs were starting. that you have a pretty robust 
curricula, a methodology yeah. of moving a startup from True. this. Um, and sorry to perpetuate this metaphor, but but from the the idea on the couch, yeah, idea on the and couch. And this this has got to be better to a real company. Yeah, to and pursue that. Let's. So this is, I think, the biggest you know myth, and this is something in Nebraska or even the Midwest, or I could say as a woman, I fall victim to. You know, we we want everything to be buttoned up and perfect before we ask for a favor, before we ask for any advice or anyone's time. And the reality is, is when you're building a business, it is better to have it messy and in a draft mode as long as you possibly can, so you can get it to a real company. And so when we start with. Uh, you know, the person off the couch. It is so simple, Stuart. I mean, it's literally like, what problem are you solving and who else has this problem? And and that is good hygiene for any business owner, any executive, any any employee, frankly, to constantly be asking themselves that question. By asking that and then actually going and talking to those people you assume have the problem, you learn a ton. And so I'll give this example. This is one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Andy Cockle. Andy runs a company that does legal briefs. So their entire business model is built around preparing really sophisticated uh, briefs for anyone presenting the Supreme Court. Heady stuff, right? Like very intellectually driven. Uh, He had thought, well, there might be a better way to do this. Artificial intelligence is coming out. Maybe I could add some firepower to some of these briefs, supercharge them a little bit. So he went out and started talking to lawyers and asked about how difficult it was to prepare a brief. And was it a problem that it didn't have all the insights it could have? And the lawyers would nod their head because the lawyers in this scenario are the potential customers. They would nod their head, yep, that's a problem. And then they would sort of cock their head to the side like someone does when they're thinking about something. And they would say, Andy, that's a problem, but you know what the real problem is? When we submit a brief to every other courtroom, besides the Supreme Court, Andy, we have to format it so precisely. And so that is, I mean, when I say formatting here, I'm talking about like margins on a page, where the page number is, bolding and italicized font within there. And doing that to the 50 courtrooms we're submitting this brief to takes us darn near 50 hours. (laughs) So that's a huge pain point and that's manual and we need a solution to that. Through that, Andy was able to derive a solution, which is a legal brief automator that he's rolling out in the next two months um, in Texas and California, where they get tons of briefs and have a high volume of traffic. If Andy would have built an artificial intelligence-enabled brief creator, he would have been adding sort of a vitamin to someone who just wanted a little bit better health. But by creating this legal brief automator, from understanding and hearing his customers. He actually created a painkiller to a real headache in the market. And so that's where we like to start with all our founders. Uh, Once we've really, really um, solidified that, which can happen quickly, by the way, that can happen a matter of a couple weeks. We then worry about the solution and we sort of take the same process. Is this solution sound like something that's a painkiller to that headache? If so, would you mind if I came back and showed you some wireframes, some drawings and sketches of what the platform might be? If you have those conversations with your future customers, one, you build rapport and a relationship that that will help them co-author what you should build. But simultaneously, you're actually scoping out your company. You're sort of penciling in the, the remnants of a business plan that will ultimately be the business that you are going to build. And great entrepreneurs, great companies, I I would say Huddle is exceptional at this, never stop that process. 
they always go back to their customer. They always listen about what's going on and what's challenging in their world um, and how they can help improve it. So that's the core of our process is like how much can your customer help inform your build? Get it there. Once you've gotten to a point where the customers have helped you really design the platform you want, um, we help you find the right team, right? You might be business-minded like a large majority of our founders are, um, and we might know the technical person that can help build the software. Uh, From there, we actually help you plan the build of the software. We help you legally incorporate the business. Um, And we also invest into companies too. So once you're kind of getting that version one, you know, the really dirty version that nobody really wants to show their parents because it will make them feel like they took a bigger risk than they need to, then we put some actual investment equity dollars into these companies. And so that is really the core of our methodology is just step-by-step Focus on the one thing ahead of you. That's a really important value of ours. Not, you know, you're not eating the elephant in one sitting. You're eating it one bite at a time. You've mentioned earlier, and you just mentioned just then, that at some point capital becomes a a, a part of this um, process. You also mentioned that there might be a slight uh, preponderance of Mm tech-based businesses in this. I just wonder, is there too much tech? So, you know, we built the Startup Collaborative to sort of supercharged, a high-wage, high-tech economy. So that's a little bit of our thesis. But what we're realizing 24 months in is that every company is software-enabled. It's just how much you feel like you want to scale. And so, you know, while we're not firmly in this camp yet, I would say we're dancing around this place of we're software-centric business models, right? So we've got a couple, you know, true product companies that are coming out, but they're entire market or distribution strategy as it relates to uh, finding customers is software enabled. I think our methodology works for every type of business. And I think it is actually really good um, executive hygiene to follow the process over and over again. Is, at least in this market, is the venture capital most interested in tech, whether that's because it can scale or just because that's what the interest is? That's a good question. So there is um, limited venture capital in this market, right? Um, it's a it's an asset class that is, it's not well developed here. There have been several exits, but most have sort of flown under the radar. Therefore, people are not aware of the success or the scalability of tech. I would say a true venture capitalist is looking for big returns. You know, they, you know, we joke, we're looking for the unicorns, right? Well, unicorns are mythical for a reason, and that's fine. I think um, what's interesting about these Midwest markets, and if we think about venture capital a really different way, like if we reinvent venture capital candidly, we can get a really, really serious and, and sort of cadence, if you may, of exits over and over and over again. If we're not pushing all the chips toward a 10x, but we're pushing them toward sustainable, scalable companies. And so one model we're toying with right now is um, it's somewhere between venture capital. It's somewhere between dividend structures. It's somewhere between a convertible note. It's, it's a somewhat uncharted territory. But what we know to be true of the portfolio that we've built so far, we've had our capital model in place for six months. Um, that's a traditional fund. It's completely lined up with our outcomes of our approach and our methodology, which means we remove our bias from those investments decisions entirely. If that entrepreneur is truly a hustler, 
truly after the market and truly proven some early, really early traction, we get out of their way and we just put the dollars in. We think that's still the right approach, but we actually think that waiting exclusively for a liquidity event is actually not in the best interest of the company, the founder, or the economy locally. So we're we're kind of playing, we're taking our own medicine and we're testing the market on a new investment thesis now. And if if anybody wants that investment thesis, and if they do want that investment thesis, fantastic. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. Hey, hey. Well, I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. Hey, hey. Said I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. And if I share with you my story, would you share your dollar with me? Bad times are coming. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Erica Worsinger, co-founder and director of the Startup Collaborative. So let's go to the other extreme. Then I asked about maybe a preponderance of tech. Yes. Let's go all in on a form of tech that I think many people are still confused about, which basically means I am still very confused it's probably about all of it. I may be too. So I doubt it. But so my question's around blockchain. Yes. It's around what would seem to be the, the virtual landscape of business uh-huh. transactions. Uh-huh. So I'm already reaching the limits of my knowledge. So when <laughs> We've I said ask, the word blockchain. I said so blockchain. now like half the, half the listeners are turning <laughs> off. They're like, no, not going down that road. <laughs> so why don't you... Um, talk, about, talk a little bit about yeah. what blockchain is and yeah. then how it might have a role to play in some of the businesses that, yeah. that are being supported by your program. Absolutely. So let's put blockchain in the same category as artificial intelligence, in the same category as virtual reality. Um, it's an emerging technology. And so the number one question every every potential founder and founder and executive should say is what problem am I solving? And then if you can prove that you have a solvent that, or a problem that needs solved, then let's, let's say this is the right tech for that. So let's assume that we have found that problem. And, and maybe we actually, we've kind of back into this through a use case here. So in our backyard, we have got some logistics companies. We've got some food companies. And I'm not making an implication that any of these companies are using blockchain because I can I can see their CIOs just sort of wringing my neck right now. But let's assume that those players are having a really hard time tracking their supply chain. It's a problem that I actually can't track the popcorn in the field to my plant 
through the batches that it goes through onto the shelf and then back into sort of my revenue stream. It's a, it, that's the problem that I need solved. Um, blockchain is a technology that acts a little bit like a digital supply chain, right? So if you have a series of different transactions that you actually want more visibility into and you want a little bit more credibility into what happened, you want to make sure that what was said happened, happened. Blockchain allows you to do that. Um, you can understand now if you know that you want visibility and credibility into transactions, why certain industries are looking at this and saying, maybe this helps us solve other problems. For example, financial services and money movement. That is hard to track. Even in, in the current banking and climate, it's, it's, tr it's tricky to track. Think about healthcare. I mean, this is insane to me now knowing what I know about blockchain and what what we have said supply chain. So I know that I was born on December 17th in some certain year, which I will not disclose. I was born that day. And I know that my mom says I was purple because I had some sort of issue. She swears it's because I was meant to go to Kansas State University. I think it was probably because I had a breathing problem. But I don't have all those records. And letter it all the way up to, I had an appendicitis when I was 20. And like, gosh, I'm going to have to call my physician to get that information, to hack that together, to give it to my future OBGYN who is helping me deliver a baby and asking questions about why I have scars in certain places. The fact that my own supply chain or information or even ledger, if you may, of my health is scattered across all the doctors and physicians that I have encountered in my entire life is bizarre. That's weird now that I say that out loud. And I would love to be the owner of that data. And I would actually love to say every time I bring a new physician into my world that I grant them access to that. But now it is sort of siloed and housed between all these different institutions. So blockchain is a really interesting technology where you know, you have this ledger, you have this series of transactions, and then it gives certain players in that experience ownership of that data. And and I think a lot of the um, sort of the purist around blockchain would say, that's your data. You should you should actually not have to pay Kansas State University to get your transcript from your degree there. I mean, God knows you might have paid them enough to go to school there, right? Like, why another $75? So blockchain allows you to own that ledger and to allow others into that ledger and authenticate it. Blockchain is a very complicated technology, and it, it is one that needs to be met with a lot of um, optimism and skepticism at the exact same time. But ultimately, the question that should be answered is, what problem am I trying to solve? Does that help answer your question on blockchain? It does. And my follow-up then is... How might you illustrate someone, a startup that you have or are working with okay. that, that is using blockchain in some way, shape, or form? Mm -hmm. We have seen a lot of starts in the blockchain space. There's a lot of use cases as to why blockchain can solve problems. Uh, and I say that with sort of an asterisk on it. Some of the problems blockchain can solve are huge. I mean, they're societal problems um, that governments can't solve or aren't equipped to solve, you know, and so some of it's like, woof, the magnitude of the problems these these starts are trying to solve is difficult. Um, there's one company in our portfolio right now that I, it's an incredible founding team. They have, the startup we're working with is called uh, Pinata, and they're developing almost like a 
toolkit. Think of like a Google Drive for blockchain developers, right? And so by doing that, they're allowing blockchain developers to sort of share information, to safely house things, um, but they're also creating almost like a playground for those developers to live within. This is the, and Kyle, the founder, would sort of wring my neck. I think this is his third blockchain start. He also has a consulting business because so many people are asking questions around blockchain. And so he realized, well, I'm spending half my time educating the market on blockchain. I should, I should not do that. I should give a little to get a little here. Um, one of the, one of the early starts that he had that had incredible validation on one side of the market because blockchain is, um, tends to be one that requires multi-sided markets was called Kina. And Kina was around patents. If you and I create something that's really defensible, we could buy, we could file for a patent together and own that in perpetuity. Well, let's say the business we created around that patent just tanks, but the patent itself is actually worth something. So we would want to sell that, right? Like we'd want to get rid of that patent and make some money off of that thing, knowing that we had just come off of this failed startup, but that tech or that that process that we got in patent was good. Right now, there's a lot of brokers that sell that. So it's a very hidden community. A lot of attorneys have access to it, but not a lot of people would actually want to buy that patent. So um, that was one start. It, incredible validation from potential patent buyers, as you can imagine, brokers and attorneys in that equation, who are largely the middleman, um, didn't love it. And you see that happen a lot with blockchain companies. If there's a broker of any type, real estate, supply chain, et cetera, blockchain sort of threatens their role because of its ability to work between different players and authenticate without them. I want to pick up on either some stereotypes or puncture some biases by talking about the role of uh, gender, the role yeah. of uh, race and, and other yes. factors of discrimination mm -hmm. and bias. I wonder if how many people, if they see the word entrepreneur, it, it's a white man, like a wunderkind. A young uh, white man. Totally. It's uh -huh. Mark Zuckerberg or someone like uh -huh. this, right? That pops to Naturally. mind. And I think there's maybe our listeners would have a broader understanding that for example, women are far underrepresented in coding and that sort of thing. What is your observation around the issue of bias and or the role of um, women and minorities in the entrepreneurial space? It is, um, this is both a, this is a personally fascinating topic to me. And then also industry-wide, you know, if I take venture capital as the industry that we play in, because that's sort of the closest that we are at. Um, it's a huge head scratcher, I think, for a lot of people. It's it's such a big problem, yet there doesn't seem to be really clear solutions around it. So here's what I have learned in our in our 24 months. 
and I'll sort of go down what I've seen outside of that and as a female founder and sort of where I think things go. In 24 months, we have seen um, more men than women apply to our program. In 24 months, we have seen anecdotally, and I'm sure if I did the the analytics on this more concretely, anecdotally, our female founders, as a percentage of the whole of the female founders, out hit male founders in terms of execution against business growth. Anecdotally. I will I will figure out what those exact numbers are. But they it, there is something about that sort of Sheryl Sandberg made this, I think, statistic famous. A woman won't apply for a job unless she has more than 100% of the qualifications, whereas a man will apply for it with less than 100%. I want to say it's 60%, but I think I'm getting that stat wrong. That same psyche plays out in our portfolio over and over again. And, and we see it not just in the actual execution, you know, the number of customer touch points, the confidence that a woman or a female founder gets from those touch points, but even in the number of, of men and women that apply to, to be a fellow in the Startup Collaborative. So that's a bit of a head scratcher to me on, on just why, why don't more of my female peers or, or women um, feel confident enough to do this? So that became a problem. You know, we have all these problems we try and solve. It's all, prob- it's all problem-based. But that became a problem we really started to dig into uh, about six months into the program because we didn't have – candidly, I was always in a room of boys. I was always in a room of boys. And it was – I joke, like, I loved living in my sorority. Like, I would love to live in my sorority all the time, and now I just don't have that opportunity. So when we started to switch, truthfully, even of our marketing messages – and started to talk about how easy it was to take the first step. You know, I, I used that analogy earlier. Take the take one bite of the elephant, don't eat the whole thing. We started to see the numbers change a little bit. When we started to incorporate more visuals, we really started to see the numbers change. And then um, when we sort of toyed with the ratio of stories we were portraying, um, you know, at, at the beginning it had been one to one, one one story per one fellow. And then we started to toy with that to see if we could we could change the diversity within the portfolio and if that would change the outcomes against business growth. And it did. It did change things. Um, so to my core, I believe that by having the first step be demystified was a huge change, not just in female founders, but people of color. Um, I can say 24 months in, we've worked with 200, I think it's 260 founders or 250 founders half of those are either a female founded only team or a person of color at the helm. And that is so strikingly different than the venture capital industry. So I'm really proud of that. I think the other thing that has really, um, it was an unintended outcome of what we did. And maybe it wasn't, maybe it was that sort of Freudian slip in what we built here. We have removed our bias in the investment process. And so we constantly say, you know, I, I love every concept until the market tells me not to. And that, and candidly, like, so we have to, because we will prove ourselves wrong. Our fellows will prove us wrong over and over and over again. And so by loving every idea until the market tells us not to, it gives everyone the same footing. And that's really, really worked out. Where I will say it's starting to kind of come back. You know, a lot of our teams need early money to actually build the technology that they're trying to create. 
you start to see the bias come out when it comes time to ask for a loan. Several of our female founders have been told by banks, like, what does your husband think of this? Uh, which, you know, makes everyone just kind of want to scream. Or are your parents going to underwrite this for you? Some of that stuff. Our, our male founders have not, at least they have not told me that they have been asked that yet. Yeah, level playing field. Level playing field, remove your own bias, let them prove it, and then also make your front door one that they can see themselves walking through. That was that was big for us. That was really big for us. You were born December 17th. Yep, some year. You are telling us the year, which uh-huh. I totally approve of. I'm just of. teasing about that. I'm not that old. I'm not um, that young either. <laughs> I want to hear about your upbringing. Oh, yeah. That's good. Um, and this is interesting. So we were talking a little before we turned the mics on about just um, hearing people's stories and like hearing – I'm working on a project where I'm listening to a lot of my founder peers, and it's fascinating when you ask them about their – how are you raised and what's the – thing that you're trying to do and how does that all sort of tie together. I don't know that mine's all that fascinating, but I do know, you know, I was raised in a house where my mother was the primary breadwinner. She had no college degree, but she was real bullheaded and sort of, I, I can picture my mom sitting in the office of many a man and just staying there. I'm not leaving until you either give me the job or give me the raise or give me the whatever. She ultimately worked her way all the way up to a really high-ranking position with a, a major national bank at a time when there were no women in the banking rooms. And, and so I, I saw that growing up. And even though, you know, to a 12 or a 13-year-old, you're a little bit like, why aren't you paying more attention to me, mom? And like, she'll tease. The one thing I remember, she missed my Peter Rabbit play, which I sort of like hang over her head. Um, but she managed to be at everything and still do all that. So I saw that growing up. I also saw my dad who was raised by real salt of the earth people. And like he was um, a teacher and he just kept moving earlier in the like education funnel. And later he sort of revealed it was because so many of the kids that he had been teaching didn't have strong male figures in their life. And so my dad had to his core been the rooter of the underdog. And this is the thing that I know. If I sort of summarize my mom, she sort of doesn't take no for an answer and and does so with a velvet glove. But my father moves his entire life around to make sure that the underdogs around him are successful and they have nothing standing in the way. And so I saw that growing up. Of course, at the time, I didn't know that that's what I was seeing. Um, I was an only child. I My mom jokes like I would come into every conversation like, mom, you're going to love this. And let me tell you. And then I would just pitch all the time. I was always pitching ideas. I was negotiating things. I think I ran away once or it seemed like I ran away, but really I just wanted to go on a walk with the new stroller that they got me. So rather than letting them ground me, I negotiated that they grounded my stroller. Like I just sort of, I had that innate ability. And so I think I am, I am in some ways the best of my parents. I think I'm also the hard parts of my parents too, but my kids are the same thing. So that's what I grew up doing. And I always grew up feeling like, why does everybody else get it? Why doesn't, why isn't anybody else worried about this? Why? And like, I remember just constantly being annoyed in school when I was told to like sort of sit down and get in line. And I went to parochial school. So you can imagine that that was frequent. Like these are the rules you follow and this is why. And, and the contrarian in me 
I was like, well, why? Why do I do this? What's the point of this? What's the upside for me? Apparently heaven was enough. <laughs> so that, I think, was the genesis of my childhood. And my parents also did a really good job of roots and wings. And so my parents, it by and large, let me dictate a lot of my educational decisions. You know, I didn't want to stay in Lincoln, Nebraska, because heaven forbid I go to the university, incredible university, by the way. And like I studied journalism, so I would have been in a very well-positioned spot to do that. But it just was that what everyone else was doing. So I didn't want to do that. So they let me decide to go elsewhere. I mean, two and a half hours away at out-of-state tuition seems like a logical choice, I'm sure. Um, I wanted to go see the world, and they didn't bat an eye when I said, send me across the pond for months at a time. I know that I've never really been away from you. My mom joked that when I went to Dallas, she kind of knew. Like, she just knew that I was never coming back to Nebraska. So when my husband moved us back here, you can imagine that my parents were shocked. And they still to this day say, like, we're just every day. We're surprised that you're here. But they would be surprised, I think, if I was anywhere because I get that restlessness and that need to sort of solve whatever's ahead of me. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line. Engines pumping and thumping in time. The green light flashes, the flags go up. Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank. Fuel burning fast on an empty tank. Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns. Their prowess is potent and secretly stern. As they speed through the finish, the flags go down. The fans get up and they get out of town. The arena is empty, except for one man still driving and striving as fast as he can. The sun has gone down and the moon has come up. And long ago somebody left with the cup. But he's driving and striving and hugging the turns and thinking of someone for whom he still burns. He's going the distance. He's going for speed. She's all alone. All alone in a time of need. Because he's racing and pacing and plotting the course. He's fighting and fighting and riding on his horse. He's going the distance. You know, you talked earlier about blockchain and you talked about it in descriptive terms that it provided visibility and credibility and you use the word transparency too and in describing your upbringing i've read elsewhere that one of the words that you've ascribed as a personal value is transparency Mm -hmm. so i'm I'm hearing you talk about being somewhat contrarian and being an astute negotiator but also being bothered by why people accept the situation around status quo yeah i kind of hate status quo so how do values like transparency and questioning the status quo, how, how does that show up in, in your life now? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, my life coach would say that if I don't have those present, that I get physically ill <laughs> because I'm not living to my values, um, which is sort of this realization that, you know, in this yuppie era where we all subscribe to maybe just a tad too much therapy, I, I subscribe to that. I would say, here's what I, here's what I believe to my core. If you are good, transparency shouldn't scare you. You should welcome and embrace that competition because it will make you stronger. And even if you fail, who cares? Like, who cares you're going to be strong because you will have been battle tested. It also helps people around you. I think, you know, I, I look at some of our fellows in the program now and it's like they didn't grow up with friends and family that could give them money. And so now they're having to bend over backwards to like prove their worth. And it's just so dumb. Like, it's like, no, they, 
have it, bet on them, it's a safer bet. Yeah, transparency is big. Bias to action is one that I always hold very dear to me. And I feel, again, my life coach would say, like, I actually feel ill if I don't see myself in a bias to action role. That is one that my past partner and, and boss and hopefully forever mentor Mark Haysbrook instilled was just a sense of like, everybody's worth it as long as they're biased to action and they're willing to sort of keep charging forward. So that, I think that is me in a core. You've clearly embraced a huge amount of your own personality and interests and your own drive and ambition in founding mm-hmm. the Startup Collaborative. Mm-hmm. But I was looking back in some notes from previous conversations you and I have, oh, have, gosh. have had. Over Mother India. Mother India, which doesn't exist I anymore. can't talk about that. It makes me sad. I haven't found a replacement it's for tragedy. it. tragedy. You are very vested in, not only in community, but in changing the world and helping others to change the world through the concepts that they're developing and you're helping them to develop. How else, though, are you involved in community? What, what else motivates you in your life? That's a good question. I'm a relatively new parent. I have toddlers at home. And I think that that commitment to, to sort of the community has changed and, and manifested differently for me as a result of tighter time constraints, frankly, but I actually think it's helped a little bit. So um, one of the things that I try and, you know, spend my day on, and I'm really disciplined in my day, I spend almost 65% of it, 66%, and I can break out these numbers, on the teams that I work on. And that is really incredibly important. And then I spend the other 33% on like either telling their stories or getting them in front of people who can influence the trajectory of their company. I think where I see my involvement in the community is just making sure people have access to what they need to have access to if they are biased to action, if we have, you know, sort of transparency into what they built. I also think being the person who puts others in front a little bit, like it's my story I I find interesting, but I'm an only child. So of course I find my story interesting. I think the stories of the people that I get to work with every day is fascinating. It's really fascinating. And that right now is the story that I want told over and over again is them and what they're doing and the companies they're creating. And, and I think what's happened, if only enabled by the Startup Collaborative, is that we are creating the next huddle and the next flywheel and the next builder trend. And we're creating it with people who may not look like the founders who founded that, but have the same value system as those people do. I think my final question should honor the spirit of everything you've been talking about. What has been your fondest failure that you feel like you've gained the most from? Yeah. Um, I think the failure that I've grown the most out of and like I sort of lovingly look back on now, which feels odd to even say, when we launched the incubator, which was sort of a predecessor to the startup collaborative, Tony Hendrickson at, at Creighton University took a huge bet on us. He gave us, I don't remember how many square feet now, last year I could have probably told you at the top of my head. And he's like, okay, build it out. And we, and we were essentially squatting for a year and a half. Good relationship. We all tried going out and fundraising. We had this great big vision together and we just couldn't land the plane, right? You know, we got the startup side of the market, but we couldn't get the investor side of the market. And then we came to this point where it was like, oh, we actually can't keep squatting here. Like, 
we can't keep staying here. And, and I kind of thought at that time, like, oh my God, I'm going to be excommunicated by Creighton. I can't ever touch the Catholic community in Omaha, whatever it is. And honestly, what ended up happening, Dean Hendrickson is one of my greatest allies and biggest investors. And also like the person that he and I have been through that breakup or that failure together. And I sort of look back and at the time, I didn't ever think I would survive that. Like I honestly didn't know how I was going to rebound. I, Erica Wessinger, or the organization I was trying to build at the time. And now I laugh about it because it's like, oh, Dean Hendrickson, I've got this this project. It seems crazy. You want to do it together. And he is the first mover in all of that. And so that you know, when things are really hard and like right now we're in a hard phase of like building and things are difficult. Um, I sort of look back on that and I think like, well, Dean Hendrickson still digs me and he's still into all that, what we're building. And so I can survive it and not because it's Dean Hendrickson, but just the, the value of what we can build together and the process of going through a failure with partners and being transparent and honest in the process and that you survive it all and you are stronger as a result. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Erica Wassinger, co-founder, director of the Startup Collaborative Erica, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>